This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash freelancership. Hey, everybody. We're here. The notification when it started the call said that we can go for eight hours. So uh, I hope no one needs a bathroom break. <laughs> I'm just going to walk away right now then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we, we do have a couple of questions here. So uh, do we want to jump in on that or do we want to kind of talk about where we're at at this point real quick? What you been up to, Eric? Uh, mostly client work, just full-time stuff. You know, booked uh, four weeks this month. This is August, in case you know delays. But I am getting two solid weeks off, which is nice. Gonna do some family stuff, and I think we're gonna go like zip lining and stuff like that too. So should be good. But yep. it's a work hard, play hard type thing, which wasn't intentional, but it ended up that way. So you're uh, you're doing Shopify stuff, or have you completely made that transition? Yeah, I'm it's, I'm in the progress in the transition. Uh, like I'm doing Shopify's client work right now, uh-huh. basically application development level. So it's fun, it's interesting, it's a nice change of pace, but I'm got some, probably next month I'll start showing up, I guess some content marketing coming out, and then I'm also working with some guys to do some outreach stuff, so basically going to be a big push, probably starting September, uh, marketing-wise, and the intention is it's going to be in the system, so it's going to kind of run, not like on its own hands-off, but it's going to be like very little touch on my part, so we'll see. Eric, when you say that you're doing uh, Shopify stuff, are you doing like Rails app development that plugs into Shopify? I'm, I'm <laughs> totally ignorant of how Shopify works. Yeah, so Shopify has an API. Shopify's in Rails, but that doesn't matter. And so Shopify has an app store where you can build apps that do authentication and use their API. Um, and so basically they can either run separately just like a whole SaaS or they can actually be embedded into either the front end, like the store part, or the back end, like the admin panel. And so you can do stuff like, you know, when an order is placed, send it to another system, do some integration, all that stuff. And so there's a, I don't know how many, there's probably about 100 or so apps for there, but you can also create private apps. So you don't have to actually have an app in the app store. You can actually have a, my company has an app or two, and then, you know, it just does custom kind of automation. So it's pretty flexible, wow. and it can be in any language, since it's basically just a JSON API, REST API. Oh, that's pretty great. Nice. Uh, what about you, Ruben? So I was in uh, China earlier this month for about a week and a half doing some training there. And then uh, we took a close to a week-long vacation here in Israel last week. Although in the evenings, I was, uh, I guess, late at, late at night, I was doing some client work, just catching up. I've got a client where we're going to have to scale up really big over the next few weeks as things launch and they're doing some advertising. So I'm learning all about scaling up servers on a massive level because we're really expecting like huge push huge numbers, which it was not at before. And separately, I've basically come to the conclusion that I'm going to start doing some coaching for people interested in doing technical training. I ran this by you guys, I think, in the chat, maybe even a few months ago, and I've been doing a lot of thinking, and I've run it by two people who do training, and both of them basically said, oh my god, yes, when can we start? And so I'm hoping in the next, say, week or two to announce it to my mailing list, see what people are interested in. And the basic idea is instead of just doing sort of general consultant coaching, how can you improve your business, it's you want to do training with companies. I'm going to help you to teach better, create better exercises, approach the business stuff better, and everyone will sort of bounce ideas off of each other and even review each other's training. That's the sort of basic idea, but I'm trying to refine it still. That's very cool. I might actually be interested in that. Oh, great, great. Yeah, special, exactly. <laughs> special price. Special price. Double. You're such a exactly. <laughs> I actually pulled that. I've got two uncles that are both. They both think they're entrepreneurs, and uh, <laughs> one of them came to me and he's like, "I've got this idea for this app." He's a commercial appraiser, and so he wanted to build software for commercial appraisals. And yeah, he's such a pain in the neck to deal with just at family functions. And he's like, he's like, so. So how much would it cost for you to build it? And I just looked at him, and my regular rate at that time was like 100 bucks an hour. I said 200 bucks an hour, and he's like, "Well, do I get a family discount?" And I said, "Yeah, 200 bucks an hour." Well, what's your regular rate? 100 bucks an hour. <laughs> you even told him. Oh boy. <laughs> he quit talking to me for about a month. <laughs> I just looked at him and I said, "You know, if anything goes sideways on this, I just, you know." But yeah, 
And there have been family fireworks with over this and his wife. No, over different things. So, oh god. So yeah, so it turned out to be a good thing that I never worked with him. So anyway, uh, should we jump on these questions? I guess yeah. I should talk about what I've got yeah, going on. So I've been mostly working on promoting Angular Remote Conf. I have been looking for clients, but not super hard, just because things are kind of working out to where I don't necessarily need the client income, and so I'm trying to figure out some of these other areas of either doing in-person training or doing the conferences or podcast sponsorships or what have you, and just experiment in the product and you know other consulting space, mainly because it leaves me with a little bit of time to work on my own projects and explore new technologies and stuff. And, and that's kind of what's making me happy. So if I have one of the few uh, apps land in my lap, then I'll probably pick up some client work, but otherwise I'm, I'm not really pushing too hard for it at this point. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to not have to worry a ton about that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I just basically I just scheduled myself 50% from January to July of next year with uh, training. And then like they came back to me and said, so how do you also like to go to Europe? And so it's like, this is totally new. It's been like six months or so that I just haven't had to look for clients. And it's a nice, nice, nice feeling. Yep. It totally changes the way your perspective on things. Yep, and I also, over the last few months, have launched Rails Clips, and so I'm actually looking at, because uh, the first series is about building APIs in Ruby on Rails, and so I'm actually looking at uh, turning that into a, a course. So it won't have all of the, here are the 10 different ways you can make a view that does JSON or XML, but it will go through and say, look, if you're going to create an API, this is the way that I would do it, and these are the tools I would use. Chuck, I, I went to the DevChat TV site a few days ago, and what's Web Security Warriors? Is that a new show? That is or? a new show, yep. Oh, wow, because you don't have enough on your plate. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, my involvement with that has been I was a guest on episode four. Got it, okay. And I got the artwork done for it. <laughs> but AJ O'Neill is spearheading that, so it's a show that I don't actually run. I just listen to it every week. That's pretty great. Yeah. All right, well, should we do this question? It's a billing question. Let's say you've been billing by the week on a large project. The project slows down, meaning there's less to do, and requests are sporadic and unpredictable, so weekly billing no longer makes sense to you or the client. What do you then switch to, keeping in mind that it's unpredictable work? I would well, just wait until they have a week's worth of work and then put them in my schedule. Yeah, but it might not allow for that. I mean, like, um, yeah. I've got a client where, I mean, I'm still billing by the hour for them because it's very sporadic for me. And, you know, it's a few hours. Sometimes it'll be a day a week. Sometimes it'll be two days a week. Sometimes it'll be an hour a week or even an hour a month. So I can't, I mean, this is exactly the situation I'm in. And so I'm billing by the hour. And that's okay with me. But it's obviously less profitable than doing it on a weekly basis. But I can't imagine, I mean, we've tried sometimes to say, let's try to crunch everything into a week just for scheduling purposes. But sometimes it just can't happen. I, I don't know if there is a good solution. I mean, uh, yeah, you're right. It does depend a bit on where people are at. So, yeah, I mean, if there's not enough to even fill a week periodically, then, yeah, it's kind of a different thing. What do you think, Eric? Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm thinking. I mean, try to clump it up if you can. Another thing is if there's not enough for a week, say, every month, or I would even go as far as, say, every a week every three months, so you know, four weeks in the year. It might not be worth doing it. Uh, it might be time to kind of transition away. It's the idea that the cost of doing business with this client is higher than the actual net revenue you get from it. So it's just, it's not a good, it doesn't make business sense to do it. That said, I would kind of question if it doesn't make sense for the client. I would actually I would talk to them and ask them and you know have a dialogue about it because it might be thinking it doesn't make sense for them. Like you might feel like they're not getting value out of it, but they might actually be getting value out of it and having you there and available and you know as an insurance, like just in case something happens, that might be worth more than the actual time you're putting in. Uh, if that's the case, then it might make sense to switch to a retainer where you give them a budget of hours or a week or you know, you could set some kind of, you know, I'll do up to this amount of work, you're just gonna pay a flat fee. That way, it's still going to be sporadic-ish, but um, you can kind of book around it. You can basically tell them, like, you know, I'll get, I'll get to stuff within 24, 48 hours, whatever. But you can fill up most of your calendar and just leave a, leave a little bit of gaps here and there for this client. I mean, that way, they might be able to get the kind of the insurance, get the help from you that they're wanting, and then you get the income, you get to keep the client. And later on, if they have a larger project where they kind of do group some stuff up, you can actually come back to them and do a full solid week or something. 
I actually have that going with one of my clients where a company contacted me to do some training and then consulting and they said basically we want to pay for a bank of hours with you to help us out and they paid up front for it. So basically now I, ha I owe them like another day and a half worth of work and they gave me an assignment that will probably take me, I don't know, two, three hours to work on, but that's about it. And so I'm just going to keep sort of running it down, running down the hours and then when we run out and we close, come close to running out, I'll tell them we're done. But that assumes I've got free time in my schedule, and that assumes that they're willing to work around when I have time. You know, they can't call me and say, or I don't think it would be fair for them to call me and say, you got to do this today because we're desperate and we paid you in advance, right? There has to be some sort of agreement that they're trading off immediacy for uh, convenience on everyone's part. Yeah, and you could even, you know, you have to talk to them and figure out you can charge for that. Like, you know, if it's just we want some of your time, you know, and it takes two, three days, to get, you'll charge, say, $1,000 a month. But if it's like, we want you to be able to drop everything, get on stuff, and we want 24-hour resolve, like, you know, get on it right away, get it fixed, you might charge $3,000 for the same amount of time. Um, it's basically kind of a support contracts, SLA type idea, uh, but you don't have to go that extreme. Um, but I would, if you can, I, I would try to not do, like, a chunk of hours. Like, don't sell them. You get 10 hours whenever you use it, you know, the contract's up. I would sell them you get 10 hours this month. If you don't use them, they're gone. You get 10 hours next month. Mm -hmm. That's the more classic retainer. The chunk of time kind of really still puts the value on, you know, you sitting there working, not the actual knowledge you know. Yeah, Holly, the person who asked the question, posted in the chat. I forgot to mention the in that question that I'm trying to avoid hourly. They don't know my hourly rate. And I think that's kind of important in the sense that yeah, you're trying to price differently. You're trying to get them to think about your time differently. You're trying to get them to value your time in a different way. And so, you know, you can definitely get away with that. You can also let them know if you do a retainer deal, though, that because it's recurring, uh, you can kind of rely on it. And you're assuming that not every month they're going to have something that you absolutely have to get done. So you, you're basically not giving them your hourly rate then, but you're saying because this is recurring and I can kind of count on the money coming my way. I'm going to give you so many hours for that amount of time and just let them know that they're kind of getting a discount on that based on the assumptions you're making as far as the value they're getting and the, you know, the amount of work you're actually going to have to do so that it all evens out. Yeah, there's two other ways if you want to avoid hourly. One is to do, this is an IT term, so I don't use it, but it's like incidents. Like if they report a bug or they report a problem, that counts as one incident. Mm -hmm. um, and you give them a budget of, we'll say, five a month. Um, and when they run out, they can buy more if you want or whatever. That can kind of be, you know, my side, your side, kind of, what is it, confrontational. Um, because, like, oh, no, that should be included in this other incident. So that's, you can do that. It's an easy way to kind of factor hourly stuff out a little bit. Um, another way, if they have the budget, you can just like you charge them a very good high level amount of money and say basically I'm I'm on retainer for you any advice you need any help you need call me we'll do it I'm gonna take much as your time that you give them to do. you know you have to make it enough where it's worthwhile so like if they do suck up all of your time or they do become kind of, you know your number one client at that point you know make sure you're compensated make sure you can survive and you know keep that um, but that's another another route you can take and that's more of you're hiring me as an advisor, and I'm going to help you do the best thing for your business, and I'll be here for you. Uh, anything else we want to add to that conversation as far as uh, billing and... Sometimes when I've talked to people about doing retainers, like it's often a sort of pseudo-hourly. Like we say they're going to get a bank of you know 10 hours, 20 hours a month, something like that, um, for a certain amount of money. And it's kind of sort of hourly, but not exactly. And I say to them, look, we don't know how many hours it's going to be. I want you guys to succeed. And so let's try it for two months, three months. We'll estimate. And it'll probably be like a sine wave, right? Some months it's going to be more, some months it's going to be less. And after three months, six months, let's evaluate where we stand. And generally, everyone's kind of happy with where we started off, right? I had a client for years where I was doing 20 hours of work a week for him, roughly. And there were some weeks when it was 10, and there were some weeks when it was 30. And I don't think either of us really cared that we were keeping track of it because it was basically like he was happy with the work I was doing. I was happy with what he was paying me. So as long as everyone's happy, you know, you don't need to keep it down to the minute. Yeah, that's true, too. All right. Should we go on to the next one? Sure. All right, so this one is, uh, when other contractors on a client project go MIA off and on and the work plays a vital role in the project, do you suggest replacements to the client? Yeah, if somebody's being somewhat unreliable on a project, it's sometimes tricky because there are people involved, and if the person keeps coming back, 
so they're in and out and in and out and off and on and whatever, then you know you kind of have to feel things out because sometimes they come back and forth and the business doesn't realize, your client doesn't realize how inconvenient that is or how it's affecting you. And, you know, they may be their darling. And so, you know, you coming in and saying, John over there is, you know, it's making it really hard to get work done. You know, they may go, oh, Susie doesn't like John instead of understanding that uh, John is making Susie's job hard, right? And so you kind of have to feel things out. But, yeah, if you talk to them and you can communicate to them what it's costing them and then they are willing to entertain bringing another person in, or you know, evaluating whether or not they need somebody, then yeah, by all means, suggest somebody that you can work with. Um, it usually works out, in my experience, better for them and better for you because it's somebody that you work well with. It's usually somebody you've worked with before, and so because of those things, you get some synergy out of that, and you don't have to learn how to communicate with each other or work together, and uh, that saves them time and money and all kinds of other things. I had a, it wasn't exactly this problem, but I had a similar problem years ago. It was probably like 15 years ago. I was working on a project where it was me and two people working for me, and we were the outsourced staff, and it was the in-house staff that was completely unreliable. Mm. And it was just maddening. Basically, they, the client would turn to us and say, so, why aren't you done? And basically to say, well, because your staff is a bunch of lazy do-nothings was not really an option. So we came up with what I think is a fantastic solution. It worked beautifully. We set up a task tracker for everything that needed to happen, and suddenly it was very obvious that we were – and then like you have to assign things to different people, mm -hmm. right? So we would start the week, and we'd assign different tasks, and suddenly it became painfully, incredibly obvious that we were getting things done within a day or two, and their staff was just sitting on things and doing nothing. And we needed to say zero. Like, we literally said nothing about this, and someone noticed it, and it changed overnight. And suddenly they began, like, stepping up their game. And so I would suggest, if you don't already have a task tracker, use it and assign different tasks to people. And if these people are really unreliable, then hopefully the client will notice this, because, like, their stuff is just going to keep piling up. And when you have regular meetings, and I hope you have regular meetings, like, once a week, once every two weeks, to figure out who's assigned to what, like, it'll be obvious that they're not doing their thing. And then your comments or your complaints will not seem like whining. You can say, these are blockers. I can't get my job done because they haven't responded to me. Yep. So Holly also pointed out in this situation, it's the clients that most upset about this. And uh, she's wound up playing the role of the therapist of the client because the other person is necessary but disappears a lot. Yeah, so in that case, <laughs> I, I, I agree. I mean, I would I would be suggesting somebody else come in. You know, you can also couch it in terms of, hey, we're going to bring someone else in to help out because we, you know, we need some help getting the rest of the work done. And then once that person kind of comes up to speed on what the other developer that's not reliable or the other contractor that isn't reliable is doing, then then you can kind of go, okay, well, so long and thanks for all the fish. You know, it just basically explain to him. We realize now that we have Joe here, and he's, you know, he's here every day and delivering value every day, and blah 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 blah. That we appreciate what you've done, but we don't need your help anymore. And that way, you can phase somebody out without them, you know, being torqued off that you're firing them. Um, the other thing, though, is that it may just be worth letting them go, and then you know, what's in the code is in the code, and you just have to figure it out just depending on who the person is and, and what their personality is and how that'll all go down. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, there's very few people who are irreplaceable in a business. Yeah. We all like to think exactly. they are, but you can be fired. Your job can be given to someone else. It might not be this, exactly the same or as good or as efficient or whatever, but it can still get done. I mean, we're not all that unique. Yep. Except for me. <laughs> <laughs> and if it's Ruby on Rails, did I say that I am entertaining... <laughs> New contracts, because I'm entertaining new contracts. <laughs> no, but the using a task tracker and having visibility works really good. I did yeah. that with a client where one person on the team wasn't pulling their weight, and it was an internal employee. And what we did is we were assigning stuff, and we had daily meetings, like you know, little stand-ups, where like you know, what are you working on? And he was able to kind of hide the fact he wasn't getting a lot of progress done just by saying he's running into these problems and you know basically blown out of proportion I guess but then every week when we actually go back and look through stuff you, know, you can see like he was getting maybe a third of the work done another thing that really worked good is in addition to that I was burning through my stuff fast like I was getting a lot of work done 
And so I would go to the project manager and say, hey, you know, John here has a lot of stuff still on his plate. Would it be helpful to him if I took some of these from him? <laughs> I would end up doing his work for him. And so at the end of the week, it'd be like, John has made 20% progress on this thing, whereas Eric has finished 10 other things. And that actually made it pretty visible that something was wrong. And um, it ended up, I think the project manager talked with him. They sat down, and he basically he was over committing himself to stuff that he didn't know what, what to do with. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of resolved itself and worked out. And there wasn't, you know, he didn't get fired. People didn't get all mad and you know, all that. And the project, you know, got a lot better at that point. So that's another thing. If you assign stuff, you can also kind of come back and, you know, offer to be helpful. And so you're in a positive light. And it kind of, you know, if people can see, it might actually shine light on, you know, where the weak link is. When I was in college, we had a course in software engineering. And I think the final project, we had to work in groups, groups of three. And in my group, there was there was one person, had to be a woman, and she just basically did nothing. And it was really incredibly frustrating for the other two of us. And we went to the professor, and we said, what are we supposed to do? And he said, folks, this is a course in real-world software engineering. This will happen in your careers. Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Like afterwards, I had to deal with him a few months after I finished the course. He was in charge of giving credit for a study abroad, and I got abroad for a semester. And I said to him, by the way, that course that you taught, I really didn't appreciate it, but it was a lot of great real-world learning there. You know, not just that, but a whole lot of things that, that, he, that he taught us, which were sort of tough love, maybe tough hate in his case. In any event, um, and he said, yeah, yeah, a lot of people come back and tell me this, that I'm simulating the real world, and maybe that's not fair, but that's just the way the real world is. And it's it's sad to say, but you're going to always have to deal with people, even in the consulting world, maybe especially, who are just um, incompetent or incom- uncommunicative or difficult. Yep, and I've actually hired subcontractors and had that kind of happen to me, and Oh God! So you know, I I pulled you know like all nighters for a couple of nights to figure out what they were doing, and then I let them go. And you know, sometimes that's what that's what it takes. And I mean, that's another solution is just to say, look, if you're willing to pay me extra time, then I'm willing to go in and figure out what he's doing, and then we can find somebody else. And then he's not essential. Um, yeah, especially in this case, if the client's unhappy and it's a contractor yeah. with the client, I mean, the you know the client should get rid of them or fire them or, you know, basically yeah. call them on it right away, be very upfront about it. Um, the fact that the client's having to come to, you know, you, another consultant to kind of like help out with this is kind of like, it's a little, that's like kid gloves, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, like get on well, and fix the problem, fire them if they have to, you know, like Chuck said, if you have to take, do a couple of overnight, overnights to kind of figure out what's going on and all that. I mean, people don't fire fast enough is a problem. I see yep. that time and time again. Your wife also, I guess, uh, who works in HR. I'm sure you hear all sorts of stories about people who aren't fired fast enough. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, people, <laughs> I mean, it's not just with her, but every organization gets deadwood, you know, basically yeah. stuff to just hold you back. And that's why there's so many layoffs when there's a downturn in the economy because companies can finally fire people with a valid excuse that should have been fired years ago. And that's yep. just that's a tragedy I mean, because it's the company's suffering. You know, they're not getting the good stuff. It's hurting morale. It's hurting other employees. But it's also the person there who is you know, not working as good as they can, they probably know it. They probably know that they're a problem child and it would be better for them to go work somewhere else that they could shine, they could put their skills to use. So Yeah, but by coming in and and providing that solution, you kind of get to be the hero for a little bit. That goes over not just in that contract, but when you go back and you want to give referrals or get a testimonial or anything like that, um, you know, they can come in and they can say not only did she deliver what we expected, but she saved us all of this time, trouble, and money by stepping up and, you know, making this other problem go away. Uh, One more thing also, since they're a contractor, also if you fire them, but if you fire them in a nice way, worst case, you can always hire them back. You can say, oh, we made a mistake. You know, there might be some hurt feelings and all that, but if it's a, you know, hey, I think, I don't think we need your help on this anymore type of, you know, we're done you always have that. So there's not like a lot of risk of like, you know, burning bridges there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. All right. Well, I don't see any other questions in there. So uh, whoever's watching, you know, feel free to uh, jump in and suggest some. But I have a situation I kind of want to talk about. Uh, I got a call from my uh, accountant yesterday. They found and... a million dollars in your account and don't know where it came from? That was from your mom. <laughs> But uh, it turns out, I, I don't know if I've talked about how uh, my company is structured, 
but uh, basically uh, the way it works is the company is owned 90% by a family limited partnership and 10% by me and then that family limited partnership is owned 90% by my wife and 10% by me and uh, the way that it was working out was that uh, when I paid myself I would pay 90% you know in uh, owners draws and 10% to myself as a salary and so it reduced the amount of social security and Medicaid that we had to pay because you know it was it was only self-employment income for that 10% well it turns out that the IRS figured out what this guy was doing and so they're auditing all of his clients but all your accountant clients uh, yeah, but I lucked out in the sense that my accountant brought on a partner a few years ago because he was planning on retiring. He's actually serving a mission for the church right now in France. And so he brought in this other accountant, and this other accountant and I hit it off. And so all of his other clients were filed under his provider number, and my my taxes for the last three years have been filed under this new accountant's provider number. So since this new accountant isn't on the IRS's radar, at least not yet, I'm not getting audited, but I am changing my corporate structure to an S-corp. So wait, you were using a shell accountant because you went into international stuff? Is that what's going on? I was using what? <laughs> you were using a shell accountant and had some extra trust stuff set up to funnel money? <laughs> yeah, I see how it is. Yeah, that's, that's more or less what we'll it is. the IRS to this show. I'm trying to understand sort of the motivation behind this. Basically, it was to reduce Social Security and Medicaid payments. Right. So, yeah. so money would come. You get money from a client. It would go to the consulting company, and that would then you would sort of take that from the owning company because the owning company gets to take the profits. Right. And the consulting company had very little in terms of salary or other expenses. Right. And then you, as the owners, or your wife, I guess, as the owner of this like, I don't know, holding company, as it were, mm-hmm. would take things, but it was much less, and somehow that reduced the taxes a lot. Right. So 90% of my paycheck went to my wife, and 10% went to me, and since I'm the one working in the business, I have to pay self-employment tax on what I get. I see. Yeah, yeah versus I mean, not that I know a lot about taxes and so forth, mm-hmm. but that sounds like a really transparent scheme that they should have figured out a long time ago. Yeah, but when he sold me on it, he was saying, yeah, it stood up to audits and it's done, you know, and I've got a whole bunch of clients that are doing it and it seems to work <laughs> fine. And yeah, apparently uh, not so much anymore. So, so yeah. Well, it is true. It's a legitimate way. I've heard of that. Um, it's mostly, I've seen it in real estate where you are not actually day-to-day. But, but that's investment income anyway. And this yeah. is different. Well, no, if it's investment income into a, a corporation, then it's considered normal income. And so it's, right. but the thing is, is, I mean, this is, it gets into crazy legal stuff. Yeah, like you, the way you're probably operating versus what you have set up probably doesn't match. And so the IRS is probably saying, well, you know, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, you know, it's a duck. Yeah. It's not a bulldozer, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> My understanding is, is that they came in and they said these family limited partnerships, because that's a legal entity here in Utah. They aren't conducting business. They're not really doing anything except passing money through them. Yeah, it's a it's a front company. And so they said, no, you can't do that. And so, I mean, people just have to pay more taxes. Is what's happening. I mean, nobody's going to jail or anything. But yeah, no, but, but they might have to pay a decade worth of back taxes. Yeah, which could be really painful. Yep. Another thing to think about: um, the IRS. If you're working in a company, the IRS wants you to be taking a salary that is about equal to market rates for your position, what yep. you're doing. And that's so, what my accountant told me. Yeah, so if you're only if you're taking like 10% of your total income and that ends up being a lot less, the IRS might say, no, 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 you're actually, you know, you are basically doing the same thing as if you were um, just had a simple corporation and we're taking everything as a dividend. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what's at play here, except for you have, you know, the two entities and different money flows. Yeah. I mean, the, obviously the laws are very different and I'm not super up on them. But I know that in Israel, so like my company, we have 100 shares because like companies need shares, and one is owned by my wife and 99 are owned by me. But it doesn't really matter because we're married. And um, basically, if one person in a family has ownership, and I think ownership is defined in Israel as like being 20% or something, 25%, then all the other people in their family are considered to be owners and are liable. And the idea is like I can't then pass the company off to my kids, my wife, uh, even like when my kids get married, I can't give the company to them 
because like they're still part of my family mm -hmm. and it's to avoid people playing game taxes. Yeah. Um, but I also know something like what Eric said in terms of the salary. Like I've talked to my accountant about can't we just boost my wife's salary because she's in a lower tax bracket than I am. And he's like, no, you can't do that because you can't just like arbitrarily change people's salaries. It has to be reflect. It has to reflect market rates to some degree. Yeah, yeah. And he um, actually went and looked, and he's like, yeah. So web developers on whatever system they look in make about this amount. And he's like, so you have to pay yourself a salary of at least this amount, and you know all of that stuff. So yeah, that's that's exactly what we're looking at. And I'm gonna get more details on Thursday, but I'm just like, yeah, as long as I don't get audited. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, be, I'll be happy. We talked about this on a, a past show with accountants, and I think one with a lawyer, yeah. where it's like there's there isn't like one thing you can do to trigger an audit. Like there's, no. I think the analogy was like a football field. Like you know, you could be on the you know one side where you're probably not ever going to get audited. It's very safe, and then the other side, it's like yeah, you're going to get audited. Like it's mm -hmm. almost like guaranteed fact, or maybe not that today or this year, but sometime. Um, and so you got to figure out like, where you want to be on that like risk profile wise. And for me, I, I actually just I have an LLC, but it's a very simple LLC that actually just passes all the income through. So I end up paying, you know, extra on Medicare, Social Security, all that, but I don't have to deal with all the legal stuff. I don't have to do, you know, other than like sending checks to Oregon just to register my name and all that. Like, yeah, it's a very simple entity. I don't have to worry about salary requirements, all that, you know. And if I get audited, it's like it's, it's I'm on a Schedule C, which is like the, one of the most simple forms for the IRS for a business. But it's like if I was if I was doing a consultancy, if I was making 10 times what I was making now, then yeah, taking on a lot of that, uh, a lot of that headache to save, you know, 10 times, you know, whatever the better rate is on not having to pay some of the taxes, it might make sense. But at the level yeah. I'm at, I'm like, eh, you know, I can just work an extra week and make it up. So it's not really worth it. Yep. Chuck, you mentioned you're going to be turned into an S Corp. Um, I seem to remember from what I know about American companies, that's like a more complex and expensive situation than an LLC. Why would you do that? Well, so with an LLC, you can file as an S-Corp, and you can set up your business in certain ways so that they behave like an S-Corp. That's basically so what I, don't, I have. Yeah, so I, I, don't have to, I don't have to change a lot of things, but I'm going to have to change a few things, especially in the way I operate. Um, my understanding is is that I have to pay myself, uh, like, like I said before, I have to pay a payroll, and I have to pay myself a salary of at least a certain amount of money. Um, I think the number he threw out was around fifty thousand dollars a year, and then it's like, okay, now how do I manage the rest of it? You know, does it come through as regular income? Can we draw it as you know owners shares and things like that? And I don't know what the answers to that are, but yeah, it's going to get a little more complicated in how I pay myself. Yeah, I actually have to talk to my accountant at some point in the near future, also, because now that I'm doing all this training directly with companies as opposed to through a training company, so my income, like per day of training, is roughly doubled. Mm -hmm. um, and so now we're using a lot of that just to like finish paying back PhD loans and so forth. But right. very soon the income is going to go up, and there's a question of: Do I take it as income? Do I take it as my wife's income? Do we pay ourselves the dividend? Do mm -hmm. we, you know? And, and the, it, I, I actually have no idea. But that's that's what I pay my accountant for. And he does this with so many companies. Like, I can't stress enough the importance of having an accountant whom you can trust and turn to. And I don't turn to mine very often, but when I do, I need answers, and he's, he's usually there to give them to me. Yeah, go find a good accountant if you have questions about any of this stuff. But, yeah, I thought it was interesting that it came up, and so I thought I'd bring it up. Yeah. So yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's Chuck, like... You know, an S corp is actually good because you can have an S corp and then dissolve the the subchapter S part and make it a C corp where it's mm -hmm. a big business. And given that you know you're in a lot of different areas, you have potentially non-consulting businesses kind of embedded in. Mm -hmm. If you ever got to the point where you want to dissolve it, split it out, you know, basically go public, sell IPO shares, whatever, like you have that flexibility. Whereas with an LLC, you have to basically close down the LLC and start up a new corporation and transfer assets which it's not hard. I, I did that when I first started my LLC, but I, I recommend almost all people do LLCs, but mm -hmm. in your case, I could see an S-Corp working good. Yeah, I'm also toying with the idea. I've been playing with it for a while. I just I haven't really had a strong motivation to do it, but you know, where I have my hands in consulting and the podcast sponsorships and a couple of other areas, the online conferences and things like that, I've thought about you know, moving some of those over under their own company just to shield the overall company and, and the other assets from each other. But I haven't I haven't seen like I haven't seen too many cases where somebody like gets sued over something they said on a podcast or anything like that. So I haven't worried about it too much. 
Yeah, and actually, Jonathan's not here today, but he talked with his attorney about some of this stuff, I think, like, past week or maybe two weeks ago. But yeah, like, there's a whole bunch of weird things that kind of come up, even if you have separate corporations or, you know, yeah. entity, but you as a person are still doing work in them. Like, there's liability concerns. It's, I mean, it basically comes down to you need to have a good attorney and a good lawyer um, and probably a good tax accountant and all that to actually understand, like, okay, what's going on? How's stuff moving? What am I open to risk-wise? Yeah. Um, and I, I think at this stage, like, it's probably not worth it. Like, I have one entity, but I have different, like, I just call them divisions. Like, this is my products division and then my consulting division. Right. But they're not mm-hmm. separate. It's just for me to kind of keep track of stuff. Yeah, and I don't want them to look, feel, or taste like I'm playing a shell game for the IRS or anyone else. So, But yeah, I think what I may do is just start consulting with an attorney maybe once a year and just saying, okay, here's what I've got going on now. How risky is this? And do you have any recommendations on how I protect myself? Yeah, and if you can do it, um, if you can get your attorney and your account, and if you have the tax account, get them all you know, on one call at once, you could probably uh-huh. get through a lot of stuff faster. Like, yeah. your attorney might say, legally, you probably want to do this, but your tax account would say, yeah, but that's going to cost you an extra four grand in taxes. And right. so you can actually balance the advice against each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I, need, uh, I need to talk to my inter- or my accountant because um, more and more of my income is coming from the podcasts and the conferences and less from the consulting. I don't know why, how that changes anything. Right. I'll add one thing about the uh, like starting other companies. So I guess it was about seven, eight years ago, I tried to do a startup, and we almost got an investment, and then we didn't. But we were so close, and the initial investor said, well, you better start up a corporation. So I registered a corporation here in Israel. I never did anything with it other than just register it. So basically just register with the, our justice ministry. But I have to pay an annual fee for it of like, I don't know, about $300, $400. And every year... It's like this thing where my accountant says, what is this that you're paying for? I say, oh, it's for this company that does nothing. And I would always ask him, like, is it really worth just keeping it around? And he'd say, oh, it's so expensive and so annoying to close the company down. So finally this year I said, look, this is ridiculous. I'm not ever going to use this company. I just want to get rid of it. So it turns out it's like yeah, about four times the annual registration fee to close it down. I've got to go to an attorney. I've got to pay him for that. And so now I feel like a total idiot. Like, like basically, I've spent several thousand dollars on this company that did literally nothing ever. And so, I mean, I know in the U.S. it's a lot less expensive to do these sorts of things. But before you start start up a company, just for for the sake of uh, separating things, it's worth it's worth considering. Okay, and what if it doesn't go anywhere? What if you sort of uh, have to do something with it later on, or one just got rid of it? Yeah, I think it cost me 15 bucks a year to renew each of my business entities. So, ah, America. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my state, so I don't know what it looks like in other states. And the initial registration was 80 or 100 dollars or something. So, each. yeah, I mean, maybe maybe a couple hundred. At the most, I'd say maybe 500 yeah. to register, and then a couple hundred even in the most expensive states. That yeah, it, it cost me it cost me another 600 to have an attorney draw up all the documents you need to have the business. And, you know, all the bylaws and board stuff and all that crap, you know, so that it looks official and, you know, as long as you're doing, you're you're dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's, then, you know, then you maintain the protection that your LLC offers and stuff like that. Yeah, in Oregon, it's 50 bucks a year for an LLC and I pay another 50 for a DBA um, just because, like, that's that's all. And I pay credit card online, you know, January, December-ish time. That's all it is for me. And then... (laughs) You know, I got to do my, you know, my own meetings and all that stuff. But that's, I have all the paperwork for that. I think I, I think I picked it a while ago. So if people's looking for that, there's kits you can buy that has templates for all the meetings, has either shares or membership, like stock certificates, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I even got one that has a little cool little hole punch thing, so I can do my official company seal. Um, but that was like maybe a hundred bucks one time fee. So why do you have a DBA? Because I started as a sole proprietor, which I recommend is probably a good place to start for most people. But I did a DBA, so it's not my name. And then when I made it an LLC, I don't want to have to do LittleStream Software LLC. So I have a DBA to LittleStream Software. Oh, it's gotcha. Probably not needed, but it's it was I set it up. It's there. I guess that's fifty bucks a month or fifty bucks a year. So it's like not really mm-hmm. drop under the bridge type thing. So and I think that that's actually I think less. I think it might be fifty bucks every two years. I don't think it's an annual renewal. Nice. Wow. I've thought about getting a DBA for devchat.tv just so people can write checks to devchat.tv. 
So what if someone gives you a check to devchat.tv and like your bank? Well, I guess I guess right. In the U.S., banking is much less personal. Like I mean, here I get I get checks. I mean, I don't get that many checks anymore. Most of it is just bank transfers. But if someone makes a, a check out to Reuven Learner, I can still deposit it in my corporate account. You know, Reuven yeah, Learner Communications Consulting, and like no one could care less. Yeah, I can do that. I just I get a little tired sometimes of explaining to sponsors or people sending you know money for this or that. Oh, okay, so. I'm sponsoring devchat.tv and I'm writing the check to Intentional Excellence Productions LLC. Right, right. Yeah, the only people who really know or care about my official company name are the like the the purchasing folks at various companies who pay me. Otherwise, yep. like they just figure that they're they're paying me personally. Yeah, but yeah. most people pay with credit cards, so it's not an issue. It just goes into my account, but not everybody. And I don't think it's really that big of a deal. I get checks written to me personally from clients that I just say this is I just put it in my business account. I even go through the yep. ATM, like completely non-personal. I've mm. actually deposited a check into my LLC. The check was one of those like early checks before there's like anything printed on like the it just has the account number. It was check was written out to me and the person didn't sign the check and the bank took it. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I, I had a check bounce. Like I, I, I had a check bounce from a client. It was probably like a year ago. And I went to the bank and I said, Why did why did this deposit bounce? And they said, Oh, because you didn't when you endorsed the back of the check, you didn't use your company stamp. And I was like, Really? I haven't done that, that much anyway. And they were like, Oh no. Very important to use a company stamp. But just to, like so you get an idea of this. Anyone can go into any stationary store in Israel and within 15 minutes have a company stamp made out to whatever company they want. So the actual security involved here is nil, but it's like a holdover from the British mandate, and some people care about it. The irony is, of course, that on the same day as I deposited this check that bounced without the stamp, I deposited another check in the same bank, in the same machine, also without a stamp, and that one went through. So clearly, like this is just completely consistency, and I haven't used the stamp since, and they haven't mentioned anything since. But as I said, I'm mostly getting bank transfers now because it's so cheap in Israel. So really, the number of uh, checks I'm getting is pretty small. Yeah, I have a stamp, but I just if if I can't find it, I can just take it in, and they're like, "Oh, did you want me to stamp that for you?" <laughs> right, right. I have the generic bank stamp that says, "You know, we're accepting this check." So ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't. I've never stamped any business checks. I sign it. Um, you could sign it, put for deposit only, put your yep. account number. Um, nowadays, I mean, my bank doesn't because my bank sucks. But you know, they even have the apps. You can take pictures of your check and it gets deposited. So it's like, I think what's happening. I think they, the banks just do spot checks on stuff. And so like, oh, we're spot checking this one. There's no stamp. We're gonna flag it versus the other 999 in that batch just goes through you know, signed or you know they're illegible or who knows what. That's true. By the way, I mean, I, I use, I think I mentioned on the podcast before, uh, for my U.S. account, I use Ally Bank, which is all online, uh-huh. and I have been, like, super ridiculously happy with them. Like, well, I talk to them once a year, once every six months or so, and, uh, I mean, they're sort of over-friendly, but they have an app that does exactly what Eric said. I think a lot of banks do now, and it's just, it's like magic as far as I'm concerned. I take a picture of the check, and a day later, it's in my account. It's right there. It's, it's great. So another question I have for you guys, and this comes off of another area of issue. I may have talked about it on the show before. Have I talked about canceling my merchant account? No, I don't think so. Maybe you guys have merchant accounts? I, I do not personally. I just yeah, get them I, for my clients. Yeah, I, I switched... Uh, I switched to Stripe, but so I had a merchant account. I set it up quite a while ago so that I could take credit card payments online. And then I hooked it up through authorize.net and I was using it with Harvest. And then I was also using it for Entreport to manage forum signups. And uh, anyway, somebody uh, was going to devchat.tv and going to the forum signup page and they were entering fraudulent credit card numbers, numbers that they had stolen to oh see God. if the payment would bounce or not, right? Because it'll come back and it'll say, your card was declined, and then they just junk that number and go to the next one. So they were using you as a test bed for finding out if the stolen card could be used. (laughs) Pardon me for laughing, but that's really like... (laughs) No, it's it's a pretty common thing. So they go find a a low-cost purchase, and then if it goes through, then they go over to Amazon and buy $5,000 worth of crap. And so anyway, I got this call from my merchant account, and they're like, yeah, this is going on. And whether they go through or not, you have to pay a fee every time it looks up the card and tries to charge it. <laughs> and so they're like, we've had clients that, you know, once this really gets rolling, they wind up paying $35,000 in merchant fees. And, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that. She's like, do I have your permission to block your account? And I'm like, yeah. 
because I figured I'd just fix it in a day and then turn it back on. So I went back to Ontraport because I was using their forms to manage the, the forum signups, and they had I had set up those forms under Office Autopilot, and then they had migrated me to Ontraport, and so I couldn't modify the form. So what they were requiring from the merchant account was that I add a recaptcha. And so I switched it. I was like, okay, well, if I have to rejigger the forms anyway, I'm going to do it all programmatically, and I'm just going to plug Stripe into them, and then I'll just leave people on the other system. So I went and I put recaptchas on there, and if you've seen recaptcha version 2, it's actually a checkbox that says, I am not a robot, and then um, <laughs> show you some images if it, they're not sure who you are. They'll show you some images, and then you have to pick like the ones that have pizza in them or something. Oh, I just saw that recently for the first time, and it was I can't decide if it was more or less annoying than other recaptchas. I, I like it a little bit better than like typing in the word the swirly word, but anyway. So I got that on there, and then I called the merchant account back, and I said, okay, you turn it back on now. So they go and look at my website. They come back, and they're like, you can't use those CAPTCHAs. And I'm like, why not? Well, you have to have the word CAPTCHAs. You can't use the checkbox CAPTCHAs because they have macros that will just check that box. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand how the CAPTCHA actually works, right? And so I'm trying to explain to this person on the other end of the line how the CAPTCHA works and why it's secure. And she keeps putting her foot down. No, you can't. No, you can't. No, you can't. And so finally, I got fed up because I, I figured out how to switch it over, but it, it looked horrible. It didn't work consistently, so I switched it back. And, uh, you know, I'm like, look, this is legitimate. It's run by Google, for heaven's sake. And she just insisted, no, we can't unblock your account. You know, and I, I'm just like, well, if I had known this, then I wouldn't have let you block it in the first place. And she's like, yeah, but we can't unblock it until you put the right kind of captcha on there. And so I emailed her back, and I said, I said, okay, well, then I'm thinking about canceling my account. I got an email back five minutes later saying, as per your request, we've canceled your merchant account. <laughs> what and a bunch of idiots. I know, right? And so I had switched everything over to Stripe. And so, you know, I got this snarky email saying, you're going to have the same problem with whoever you switch to. And, yeah, it has been so not a non-issue. And, yeah, just having that recaptcha on there and making it work, it's just been... It's worked fine. So, look, I ha I haven't had to deal with any of that stuff. I mean, for selling my ebooks, I'm just using Gumroad, and they yep. take care of all the credit card stuff. And I talked to my bank about taking credit cards from clients, and they asked me how many clients I have, and they asked me how many would be interested in paying by credit card, and how much money it would be. And I told them they said, "You're nuts. Like, it is just not worth it." It's if, not if worth they the really don't want to do a bank, it, right, it's just not worth it. Like, if people are not going to do bank transfers, just have them send you checks. In your particular case, it's just like way better. Now, obviously, for sign up for the forums, you need to take people's credit cards. There's no other way. And yeah. I've heard Stripe is great. Yep, Stripe works great. So I switched it all over to Stripe. Um, there are probably 30 or 40 people that were on Entreport that aren't renewing anymore because the merchant account is is gone, and you can't switch them from merchant account to Stripe within Entreport. Because uh, it uses authorized.net's APIs, but it was basically breaking even on Entreport, so I'm just gonna cancel that service because I don't need them. I'm gonna switch to a much cheaper CRM, and then Harvest. I went in and I'm like, oh, I really hope this works. So I I went to look at their payment options, and they had Stripe, and then authorized.net and PayPal, and I already had PayPal set up. So I clicked the radio button for Stripe. The the other section for authorized.net just went away like that because you can only have one credit card processor in there at a time. So I just connected it to my account. It did an OAuth. I got to pick which uh, account it went into, and that was it. So my message, I guess, is unless you have a compelling reason to get one, don't bother getting a merchant account. Just start out with something like Stripe and PayPal, and you'll be fine for 99% of your stuff. I mean, my, my client that does a ton of e Commerce. Well, I guess, I mean, Eric, you probably deal with this a lot also, but it's all done through Shopify, and they probably handle this, I assume, for you. So you don't um, need to worry about it. Yeah, they can. I mean, my blanket recommendation is every consultant should have PayPal just because it's mm -hmm. used a lot. It's it's sucky, yep. but it's there. And if you do need, like, credit card stuff, do Stripe. I actually let clients pay through what is called Stripe Checkout, literally 40 lines of code that I custom wrote just because I wanted to embed it in an existing app. But... Use Stripe, and then when you get to the level where you're literally looking at the like, what is it, 2.7% transaction fee, and wanting to get it down 0.1%, yeah, then start shopping around for merchant accounts until you hit that level. It's not worth it. It's not worth the pain. Yep, totally agree. It was a yeah, hassle I mean, I, to get it set up too. So, I'm sure. 
my, my big client that does uh, a lot of uh, e-commerce stuff, uh, we just use Braintree, and we've been very happy with them. Um, and we use them for both. I think we still use them for both, like the transaction, the gateway, and the merchant account. Mm -hmm. And it's um, more expensive than if we were to shop around, but knowing that it's just there, and they work, and they respond to our requests is, is worth a lot. Yep. Yeah, Braintree's good, too. I, use, I actually use them on a SaaS I built. The only downside of them is it was uh, they had like a monthly fees for having the accounts, and the SaaS just wasn't making it, so I canceled it. But yeah, if Stripe wasn't around and I had to do that sort of thing, I'd probably use Braintree. Nowadays with Stripe, where it's like you don't pay anything if you're not using it, it's great, um, mm -hmm. especially for like low-volume transactions. Um, and you know, Stripe, Braintree, PayPal, most of them are pretty comparable on the amount you pay. And if you're charging clients and the, the fees are so minor compared to what you're actually billing for, it's, it's a better use of your time just to go out and build another client than it is to you know, get an extra percentage yeah. point off. Yeah, the other issue um, I had with the merchant account was that they would give me the full amount of the charge. So if it was a $10,000 charge, I would get $10,000 in my account. And then the next month at the most inconvenient time possible, they would come and debit the fee back out. Right. Versus Stripe, where Stripe takes it out. It comes out. It's transferred yeah. through your merchant. Because what it is, well, Stripe, everyone has a merchant account, but Stripe controls it. So the credit card fees go into the merchant account. Stripe takes their cut out, and then Stripe transfers from the Stripe merchant account to whatever linked account. So, like, you don't even see it. I don't even log it in my accounting system anymore of how much I pay in credit card fees because I don't really care. I just, I just say that, you know, what I got. But I, just, uh, I know we have another question. I'll just uh, add one, one yeah. thing. Uh, remember that for uh, people outside the U.S., Stripe and Braintree are basically non-options. Non PayPal is yeah. the only game in town. And uh, so the fact that they exist... Like that. Stripe is... They're, they're expanding. They're yeah. not yet in Israel, I can tell you that much. Yeah. Neither of them is yet in Israel, although both of them say, hopefully soon. They both take shekels, but they don't let you work with them if you're an Israeli company. Um, I think Canada and England and like a few other EU, uh, EU countries are starting to be there, which yeah, is a bit of a thing to find. All right, let's um, tackle this last question and wrap up. So the question is, do you guys let clients text you about projects? I found that once you let that happen, they start texting about things that should be emailed or handled as elsewhere, or texting expecting a faster response, or texting at inconvenient times like when you're driving with your family. And uh, I haven't had too much trouble with this, so I generally, if they want to text me, that's fine. But I text them back when I'm at work. <laughs> I don't give my cell phone number to any clients with the exception of one. I gave it to them because they had, I was basically running their servers for them, and it was mm -hmm. like must-stay-up type servers. I do not have, like, I don't even have a text messaging plan. I always use the iMessage. But, yeah, I don't, I don't allow that. I have a business... Phone number. It's an 888. I also have a local one for international people. They call me. It actually calls my cell phone, and I get emails of voicemails and all that. So if it is a critical issue and they have to get a hold of me, they can either email me or call me and leave me a voicemail, which turns into an email. I mostly don't make myself available for instant messenger because the expectations I set with my clients is I'm going to be doing the work. I'm not going to be on the clock for you. And I think that's kind of an important thing is if, if they think you're available at any hours to do stuff, like you know, they're going to you just like their employees that they you know require to work any hours that they want. So I kind of do that. It's kind of a power play, but it works for me. Yeah, the IM thing has bit me. I had a client that had me in their Slack channel, and I would just leave the thing logged in, and then I would ignore it until it was time to check it. And they got frustrated because I was signed in and showing as online at 10.30 at night, and I didn't reply until the next morning at 8 o'clock. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, it's like, well, you were showing up as online, so I just assumed you were there. And I'm like, did you ever get on and notice that I wasn't online? Because I just leave the thing signed in. Well, you know, and so then I had to go through the mental hassle of, okay, did I set myself away before I got up to go to the bathroom? You know, yeah. and yeah, finally it was just like, it was like, look, I'm leaving this signed in, and if I respond right away, it means I'm sitting in my computer and I saw it. Yeah, same thing. That's, I mean, if anyone who knows me and sees me on Skype, I'm always as do not disturb, and I'm always signed into every Slack when I'm away, and it's because I'm not going to sit there and manage if I'm yeah. physically there for you. You can try to talk to me, and if I'm there, I'll get you know I'll reply like almost right away. But if I'm not, just think of it as a little personal answering machine because all of these services will give you a notification or an email about it. Mm -hmm. So like we're not going to lose anything. And I tell them like if you really want to make sure I see something, email it to me. Yep. You know the Slack or whatever. It's just a, an extra service, or if we need to collaborate. 
you know, it's just like a phone call. We can schedule time to sit down and chat if it's important. So just as like a counterpoint to everything you guys are saying, I mean, I can't imagine, at least in Israel, not giving clients my phone, my cell phone number, and not getting you know SMSs, text messages from them, and not like having WhatsApp is very popular here. Um, that said, people are typically pretty normal about it. Like I've never had anyone just sort of harass me on. It's usually, um, where are you? Like where are we meeting? Um, it, it's just sort of setting things up. If someone were to like constantly berate me on there, or, or, or you know even on Skype, you know if someone were to take my time, a I would tell them please stop, or I would ignore them, or some combination thereof, or I would stop working with them. But like, <laughs> basically in Israel, you're assumed everyone, like not just me, but like my kids <laughs> and, and all of their friends are assumed to be sort of always on. I'm not sure this is necessarily healthy for society as a whole, but uh, everyone's sort of always connected, and the phone number you give people is assumed to be your cell phone, um, even for personal stuff, personal, professional, whatever. But yeah. it doesn't bother me because, it, especially as I do more and more training, like, what are they going to harass me about, right? Like, you know, when it, it's the most it'll be is they'll send me an SMS saying, "Are you showing up? Class starts in ten minutes." And I say, "Yes, I'm in the parking lot. I'll be there." Yeah, I, like that's what I was saying. It's part of like my brand is I'm very big on I hate the word balance, but like balancing stuff. Like I have a life outside of work. I'm not here, mm -hmm. you know, sixteen, eighteen hours a day. I'm not a startup type mentality, and so by having a bit of a disconnect between you know, my cell phone, my personal life, and my business life, it kind of reinforces that. And so that's what I mean. Like, it's, I tell my clients, you know, how I approach things, set expectations early on so they know. Like, the one where I gave the phone number to, like, that was, like, you know, we had a retainer agreement going. I was, like, not on call, but, like, you know, they'd get a hold of me at night if their servers went down. You know, we had different expectations in that one instance. Right. Yeah. For me, I mean, the texts have been very, very rare, so it just hasn't been an issue. So, you know, I haven't minded giving it out because it's, unless it's like critical stuff or somebody I already knew, no big deal. I even put my cell phone number on my website and I've gotten new clients from that. People call me and say, hey, we see that you do XYZ, we'd like yep. to talk to you, which I see as a good thing. I also have the advantage that, you know, some of my clients who might, I guess, potentially harass me more with the development stuff are typically in the US and I'm in Israel and people in America don't know how to dial internationally. It's like dialing the moon uh, or, or perhaps even harder. 1-800-THE-MOON. Right, exactly. <laughs> but the, the, the long-distance fees will kill you. Um, <laughs> the, the, I got this Skype number, a U.S. Skype number, years ago, and it's on all of my email, and it's on my website, and it's like plain as plain as plain can be. And the only person, I think I might have mentioned this in previous like shows, the only person who calls it is my sister. Everyone else. Like, <laughs> like basically, I've n literally never had a client call it try to reach me there, which makes it perhaps a questionable business expense, but convenient to talk to my sister. But it's surprising how little people take advantage of that because they know I'm available via email. Yep. Oh, and by the way, just to answer one last thing with Holly's thing, like so she said, like when you're driving or with family, I am completely not embarrassed at all that if a client calls me and I'm with my family, I say, listen, I'm with my family, can you call me back tomorrow? Can you call me back the next day? And um, you know, perhaps I'm not as uh, admirable as Eric here in terms of making a separation between work and life. I do make it clear, that, you know, I'm with my family, I can't talk to you about work right now, and they have 100% of the time been very respectful of that. I just don't answer it. If I'm with my family and I know it's one of my clients and it's not during like a, a time that I would think they would regularly expect me to be with my family, I just won't answer it. So if it's after five or if it's yeah. before eight, I just won't answer it. And if it is during that time and I'm like taking a day off to go to the water park or something with the kids, then in that case, you know, I'll, I, yeah, I'll just pick it up and say, hey, I'm with my family. Um, I'll call you when I get home. It'll probably be later in the evening. And then they can deal with that or not deal with that. But I've never had it be an emergency where I actually had to go, okay, well, we'll go fix that. Yeah, like I said, mm -hmm. that one that I had... One time, it was, I think, on a weekend, my wife and I were shopping at Ikea. I had to stop, get on my phone, log in through SSH to their server, bring up all the, the servers because the server got rebooted or something. Mm -hmm. Basically, so barely any signal in Ikea doing it. And that was like, you know, with them, it was fine. I understood the case. But I was like, yeah, I never want to do this. I never want to, like, take that time away. And that for me, that reinforced you know, my own policies about it. haven't done it since. All right. Well, should we do some picks? Oh, that. Huh. I don't think I have any picks for this week. I think I'm fresh out. That's fine. We're a little over time. We can just skip it. I got two finally, so I'll do mine. Oh, go ahead. Oh, wow. Um, okay, so these are related. Um, they're both really good about pricing and rates. 
One is by Naomi from Itibiz. It's how to confidently raise your rates, which is something that I think everyone should at least think about. She has some good, some good stuff. Uh, Naomi's really good on like the emotional side of business, of like, what are you going through as a business owner? You know, not just the nuts and bolts stuff. And then the second one is by Blair Enns. It's seven universal truths about money. There's a lot of stuff in this post. Um, the big thing I think is in the last section. There is basically two paragraphs from the bottom, basically about raising rates. That's kind of a instead of raising like, oh, I'm gonna increase my rate by ten dollars an hour or you know, $100 a day or something small, you know, jump at like three or four things, like double your rate, triple your rate, do something like that so that, you know, you can actually with the next client actually make a significant amount more um, and just kind of, you know, get over yourself and have the confidence to do it. I think that's also very key. And if you kind of put these both together, uh, I think over the next, what is this, you know, August, I think, you know, by the end of next year or by the beginning of next year, you can probably do something significant for your rates, which does a whole bunch of transformational things for your business. So I'll put the put the links while I'm in the show notes, or I don't know how we'll do it in the chat, but we'll get that in there. Ruben, do you have a pick, or should we wrap up? Uh, I think we can wrap up. Okay. Well, thank you all for viewing and watching. We'll do this again next month. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash form. 